Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Life Beyond the Numbers. In this week's episode, I speak with a remarkable woman, Anna Haslock, who has a powerful story to tell. A story about adventure, resilience, personal growth and living a good life. And it is also a story about dealing with and learning from two extremely difficult life experiences. And having discussed this with Anna, it feels appropriate to give a content warning. As some parts of this episode might be difficult to listen to, or maybe you'll find the content disturbing. Firstly, Anna speaks about her partner, Mike, an ultra endurance cyclist who was killed in a fatal road traffic accident. And secondly, between approximately minute 22 and minute 29, Anna speaks about being raped, the impact of that on her life, including the trial. So if any of the content in this episode brings anything up for you, please do reach out to or speak to someone you trust. And if you do listen to this entire episode, I hope you enjoy it. It really is a powerful story. And thank you for listening. Today, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Anna Haslock. Anna, you are so welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Thank you. It's an honour to be here. <laughs> cool. So when I think about words like integrity, autonomy, community, history, technology, I mean, I could be speaking about absolutely anything. And you could easily think I'm speaking about a workplace. And in one way, I am. But I'm also, or we are today, going to talk about cycling, endurance cycling or ultra cycling the cyclists who participate, but also the community that has built up around them. And personally, I'm a firm believer that the world of work and indeed people in workplaces can learn so much from the world of sports or those who participate in sports. And not just from the perspective of seeing what human beings are actually capable of, but also in terms of teamwork, ethics, practice, mindset, consistency, coaching, leadership, role models, and so much more. And with that in mind, 
Anna, tell us about Lost Dot. Okay, um, so Lost Dot uh, is a company, a not-for-profit company set up in 2017, and it's set up to run two ultra-distance cycling events, both in Europe, even though we're based in here in the UK. And we were set up in 2017 because the founder of our events, Mike Hall, was tragically killed in a road collision in Australia when he was racing. And so Mike was my partner and I had been assisting him to run these events. Well, just the event, which is called the Transcontinental Race. My title was race coordinator and he was the race director. And we ran the event together for about three years. And then he was killed, obviously, suddenly and completely unexpectedly in Australia, which was, of course, all kinds of awful. He was killed in the middle of organising the 2017 event because it takes place in July every year, just after the Tour de France has finished. So Mike died. And of course, lots of problems and issues and things. But one of them was, do we put the event on this year? And if so, how? Because <laughs> how do we do it without Mike? Mike was very famous within our sport, very famous ultra cyclist. He held the fastest man around the world on a bike, uh, unsupported record. And um, he won many of the large famous events within our field. So one is the Trans Am in America. The other is the Tour Divide also in America, which he still holds the record for all these years later. So he's a very impressive cyclist and a a very impressive human. So we had to decide if we were going to put the race on. And of course, that was a sort of discussion with me, with his family, with our sponsors and with some other people who've been involved in the race and have helped us over the years. So we brought this loose team of people together to decide and The decision was, yes, we were going to do it in Mike's honour as his legacy. We thought if it didn't happen that year, it might never happen again. It felt like a good thing to focus our energy on. And it felt quite healing to all come together and as a group and support each other in our grief and work towards something really positive. It was a bit uh, scrappy (laughs) because most people had a full time job and people just pitched in. And because I'd worked with Mike, it was decided that I would be the race director And then four of us formed a company, Lost Dot, and we were going to take the race forward. And so, yeah, we put the race on that year and then Lost Dot decided we would continue to put the race on. So we formed this social not-for-profit company and we gave ourselves some missions. So one was to preserve Mike's legacy and run the race as he'd intended it to be raced. So by races for races and to keep it grassroots and to keep it not focused on profit and to keep it very focused on what his ideals were for the race. One of our missions is to celebrate integrity in sport over winning at any cost, which is very close to my heart and was very close to Mike's heart and to promote adventure cycling for physical and mental health. Obviously cycling is a sustainable form of transport. If you're going to travel thousands of kilometers on your bike it's a way of proving to people that a bike is more than just something to poodle to the shops if you want to you can go around the world on your bike so 
there's that. And obviously part of the race is this challenge, it's this personal challenge. So it's to promote taking on a big challenge as a means of personal growth and to challenge your self-development and you know prove to yourself what you're capable of really. And the final one was to promote road justice. Obviously, I mean that's close to any cyclist's heart, but particularly the circumstances around the crash with Mike and I'm still <laughs> in uh still sort of challenging the Australian police because they did an absolutely appalling job of um, investigating the crash. So there's actually no way we'll ever know what really happened to cause the crash. It was clearly the driver because he drove straight into the back of Mike at 60 miles an hour. But why that happened, we will never know because the investigation was so poor. So it's very close to our hearts to promote the idea that some people as drivers do not get that the roads are for us all to share cyclists car drivers horse riders pedestrians all of us in we must share these roads and we must do so safely and for drivers that means slowing down (laughs) absolutely and I guess Mike was such a seasoned cyclist what you said there he had lived on a bike practically by the sounds of it over the years so for something so tragic to happen like you say you're never going to know but it doesn't sound like Mike would have taken risks no no he was very experienced he was very diligent very logical he's an engineer he worked for the MOD he did great big projects as an engineer and he would approach everything in a very engineer way which is very different to me and that's not my way but I learned a lot from Mike I learned how to do that better I can't say I do it naturally but I learned from Mike how to be logical and step by step and obviously for an engineer who's working on MOD projects risk and uh, risk management and risk assessments are so important they're so key to every step of the process and he would approach his racing in that manner he would say to anybody asking he wasn't the fastest cyclist out there but he was very good at analyzing his performance and seeing where he can make improvements I mean for one thing just spending a lot of time on the bike a lot of people stop a lot and if you want to save time when you're racing stay on the bike it sounds so obvious but yet you'll see people racing and they'll stop for coffees and and you're like well you're racing (laughs) the lost dot and has another meaning and just what you've been saying there you can't really see people racing so how do you know they've stopped yeah (laughs) so that's the technology element of, of the five elements of our race so we have gps trackers Uh, each rider has a GPS tracker and that will be on their person at all times and then we have a live map on our website the entire race and then anybody who's interested in the race including the riders themselves and obviously including us as race organizers will have eyes on what all of our riders are doing at any given time so they shouldn't really be turning it off there's circumstances where they might want to or need to but generally speaking they certainly shouldn't be moving while it's off so whilst they're moving that tracker needs to be on that's a way that our riders can see where their nearest competitors are 
and obviously for us as race organizers that's where we're able to monitor what they're doing and check they're not cheating so we have rules obviously as a race because we're not for profit we keep the race fee fairly low and we want to be accessible to as many races as we can so we try to keep the race fee fairly low so we operate with a team of volunteers assisting us on the race we have a team of volunteers called dot watchers because the dot is like a sort of a little dot on a map and that's how you see where the rider is so they have seven or eight dots riders that they all monitor as volunteers and then they have a number of checks to do on each rider every day each volunteer will keep records that way when we get to the end of the race pull all that data together and get a good idea of what's happened throughout the race and and then me as the race director and my race coordinator will monitor and assess and make decisions we have to check if anyone's broken any rules and then we'll decide if it's a penalty or if there's some other kind of consequences and then we'll make judgments based on that and then we'll deliver the final results hopefully the order that the riders arrive at the finish is more or less (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the same after we've awarded penalties and things like that. We've never had a rider finish first and then not actually be first, which is a relief. <laughs> okay, yeah. So if the dot, I mean, if somebody were, for example, to take a lift, their dot would be moving faster than is possible on a bike. And that's how you know that they weren't following the rules. Absolutely, yep. Yeah, so the setup of the race is it's 4,000 kilometres, it crosses Europe, and each year it crosses Europe in a different route. However, we don't have a set route, which is fairly unusual in racing. So what we do is we have four what we call control points. And this style of racing is based on a style of riding competitively but not racing which is called Audax in the UK or Randonneur in France and that's usually a ride where you start anytime you like and you have to get to a number of control points which will be points on a map and you have to get there within a certain time so on our race riders all start at the same time and then it's a single stage race it's it's like a clock that never stops So we'll have four locations throughout Europe where our riders are mandated to arrive whenever the first rider arrives. We don't mandate that time, but then they have to arrive before a certain cutoff time to remain within, we call it general classification within the race. Obviously, if people arrive after, that's fine. We don't prevent them continuing, but because we're a small organization without limited budget, we have to move on. So our team of volunteers will move on. So we're basically not manning that location. And when I say manning, we we have volunteers who check in the riders at exactly what time they arrive. And then we'll input that into our system. And then we have a record of what time they arrive at each control point until the finish. Okay, yeah. And Mike had actually set up the TC or the transcontinental. So he had originally come up with the idea for this race. So maybe you tell us a little bit about the history of it then as well. Absolutely. Yep. So Mike started and set up the event, the race in 2012. No, 13. But he came up with the idea 
in 2012. So that's when he was racing around the world and that's when he won it and became the fastest man unsupported to race around the world. And maybe um, what does unsupported mean as well, Anna, for those who might not know? Absolutely, yeah. So, well, if, if I go back even further, our race is inspired by the original Tour de France. So the original Tour de France set up in the 1900s was an unsupported race. It wasn't for professional cyclists, it was for amateur cyclists, and it was just to sort of see how far people could get on all sorts of terrain roads. It wouldn't all be tarmac, obviously, back then. I'm not even sure it was invented. So <laughs> it would be all sorts of terrain. And they were quite insane events, really. People would just set out. There wasn't any GPS tracking, obviously. So people would cheat like you wouldn't believe. And there was all sorts of drinking and taking quite serious drugs and <laughs> so all a bit chaotic. So those elements of it, obviously, we're not keen on. But the element of it not being professional cyclists, but anybody who's knows what they're doing and they know they can do it and they're passionate and they're interested can turn up at the start line with their bike and go as far as they can on their bike in a certain set time. So that's the inspiration. Mike was very, I guess it was a romanticized idea of the good old days. So he had that in mind. And then he was racing unsupported, which means racing without a support team, without a vehicle with you, without any arranged pit stops en route. You don't have your coach on the phone. You don't have any kind of support team around you. It's you and your bike and your decisions and then the consequences of your decisions. You have to basically manage yourself, manage your bike and manage your own race. And the trackers help us check for certain rules. And a lot of this racing is also based on self-policing and being honest and having integrity and believing in what we're doing. So there is a lot of self-policing involved in this race. And what we spend a lot of our time doing is explaining the rules and why we do unsupported and, and the benefits to everybody in the hope that people understand <laughs> and don't cheat. So for example, unsupported, you'll be racing, say the race goes through or near your hometown. You can't go home. You can't meet up with your wife and she buys you a nice lunch or something. Your uh, family member can't drive alongside you and hand you things from the car. You can't have a vehicle following you. So all those sort of things you do, it needs to be you as if you were alone cycling. You can phone family members, you can phone home, you can keep in touch and things like that, but they mustn't be booking hotels for you that evening. They mustn't be providing you information such as like, oh, there's a McDonald's just up the road, you can stop there. They mustn't be doing any kind of things like that. So the idea is that you're fully in control and in charge of your race and all the decision-making that you make, including, I think I probably haven't talked about this yet, the route. You, Yep, you have to navigate as well. <laughs> you have to do everything. <laughs> so our riders have at least a year to prepare. They're given the route. Well, they're given the control points and they're starting to finish. But how they navigate between those locations is up to them. And the interesting thing about that is that they are selecting a route that suits them as an individual. That's a really interesting part of the race is that you'll get 
all sorts of different people racing and obviously they'll have different strengths and weaknesses and so they're able to plot a route that suits their own strengths so for example a rider who's particularly strong climber uh, might choose a route that's a little more direct but maybe has a little more elevation whereas a rider who's stronger on the flat would choose a less direct but maybe they'd look for less elevation gain and so in that respect although they're choosing different routes they are still in the same race and the challenge or what we're measuring isn't just their physical strength and it isn't set to a particular body type or or mentality or anything like that the test is more of how well do you know your strengths and weaknesses how good are you at managing yourself over long distances and under pressure and under extreme quite extreme weather or circumstances when you're traveling across Europe on roads that everybody uses it's not a sterile environment it's not an environment where only a certain number of set things could impact you you're operating in the real world and so you've sorts of things prepared <laughs> yeah and you've prepared for anything basically you have to be prepared for anything yeah And one of the things we say is the most prepared will succeed. So you might think, well, I'm super strong and I win triathlons all the time. But unless you have attempted unsupported racing over a large distance before, I'm not sure you're going to do great (laughs) because nobody knows until they try one of these events how they're going to handle it. So much must be mental, Anna. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it is. Uh, all of our riders will will say that to you. Yeah, if you ask any of them, it's definitely a test of your mental aptitude, how well you know yourself, how much you've tested yourself under extreme conditions before. And that, I guess for me, that's one of the aims of Lost Dot is to promote adventure cycling for self-development and personal growth. And it's something that's quite close to my heart because I, I think myself and Mike um, both have experienced for different reasons the real benefits that you can get from having been tested to your extreme. For Mike, mostly his was (laughs) self-imposed doing these events. I think part of his personality and a lot of our riders' personalities is they need to test themselves like this. They need to push their boundaries and, and try these extreme experiences. And the rewards that they get very important to them life affirming to them I don't race these races I organize them but I don't race them but I feel I experienced this test of myself through well unfortunately for me my tests were two very difficult experiences in my life just before I met my I I was raped just after my 30th birthday great Uh, I mean, there's never a good time, but I was out celebrating uh, with friends. We were celebrating my 30th birthday and um, a man uh, decided to rape me and he did. And um, I had to obviously handle the immense effects that had on my life. It, It did break me. It literally broke me. I had to move home with my parents. I broke down completely I couldn't even get on a bus I couldn't walk down a country lane I remember walking down a country lane thinking like I need to 
try and build myself a bit. And this is a country lane. There's nobody around. I was very anxious about other people. And I was walking down this lane and a, and a man, just some guy was out walking. He was just walking down the lane, but I was terrified of him. I leapt over a fence, hid behind a hedge. I had to hide for it until he'd gone because I, I was just terrified. And it was um, your brain. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, absolutely. My brain was protecting me. Yes. You know, and, yeah. and I didn't trust anybody. So it took a long, long time for me to work through all of that. I had to wait a year for the trial because, you know, I reported it to the police and um, he was actually caught, which I think is sometimes extremely unlikely. But he was caught. Obviously, they got his DNA from my body and they were able to use that and he was actually on the database already so they were able to catch him so I had to wait a year to go on this trial and they recommend that you don't get any counselling in that time in case the opposition use it as uh, you've been sort of coached so you are recommended <laughs> to just sort of stew it's just horrific that's it's just horrific. oh my god so you have no support other than family and friends but no there's no professional. Well, I mean, you can, but then, of course, you, you're worried that you're risking the whole reason that you're going through this. It's a, it's a year of, you know, you, you know, it was a reading all about past trials where women have been called liars on the stand and the defence just tearing into them. You know, it's just, you know, and you read all of that. Of course, you, do. you can't help yourself. You worry about it. Of course you do. And then, of course, you're not recommended to get any support in case the defense use that against you so and you wouldn't be going through all of that if you didn't want to get that guy and for me maybe some revenge but it was just about he was a dangerous man and I wanted him off the streets I wanted him off the streets because I knew he'd do it again there's no question yeah you don't want it to happen anyone else I didn't want it to happen anyone else exactly so that was my first real personal test, which was quite an extreme one. And, and of course, I didn't, I didn't just, oh, well, I can handle it. You know, I didn't. I, I completely broke down and I was like a child again. I couldn't do anything, really. Oh, and then we went to trial and went through the trial and, and the jury found him not guilty, which, you know, again, was a real <laughs> a blow, a huge blow, huge blow. And that, I think... I think that kept me going, you know, thinking that I've got a purpose. I'm suffering all this, but I am going to get that man off the street. So I'm going to do everything I can. And I and I did everything I could. Of course, you look back and you think, I maybe I should have said this. And of course you do when it doesn't go the way you want. But, you know, anyway, I did everything I could. And as did my friends who were witnesses. The way the trial is, I'm just a witness. You know, I'm you know, I'm not sort of part of the trial, really. I'm just a witness. So obviously I was questioned by the defence and he actually did a good job of defending the guy because he got him off and he did challenge me and suggest that I was lying, which of course is very difficult. I mean, I appreciate he was just doing his job and I, I obviously was quite angry with him at the time but he was just doing his job but anyway we we weren't successful and the guy was found not guilty and then that's it that is it and and you're left picking up the pieces basically I think that was the lowest I've ever been yeah I didn't I wasn't suicidal I was I just I remember 
sitting in the taxi leaving court with my family and my friends who'd you know been the witnesses and we were all just in shock we couldn't believe it and I remember looking at them all and I just wished I was any of them just wished it wasn't me you know and that's um that's the worst that's the worst I've ever felt um anyway (laughs) well I mean I don't it isn't anyway either Anna and it's something for those of us that have never had to deal with anything like that it's something I hope we don't have to deal with and for those people who do deal with something like that I think being believed And being supported is so huge as well. And we're so quick to judge or not believe people, whatever it is they they bring. And perhaps maybe when when something terrible happens to Mike and you lose Mike, that actually the support you had around that was very different because people all can rally around and the world treats that differently. We treat death differently than when we look at how women are treated or raped or whatever and gosh I mean from one tragedy to the next because rape is a tragedy as well yeah absolutely and yeah I think you're right there it's it's also not just the there is a fear of not being believed and I think I think most if not all people who've been raped would say that you know we don't talk about it because we worry that people feel uncomfortable, but we also worry that people won't really believe us. Um, a friend who clearly wasn't much of a friend actually asked me when I told him, he asked me, well, you know, were you in bed with the guy when this happened? You know, as if that would somehow, somehow excuse it. I wasn't, you know, but that, but again, you know, like, what's that got to do with it? That's got nothing to do with it whatsoever. Yeah, except it does in so many, it dis- obviously it doesn't but in so many people's minds it does and I haven't really spoken about this before publicly I mean my friends all know about it my family obviously but I haven't spoken about it publicly before but I do feel that that I wouldn't want anybody obviously to go through what I've been through lots and lots of people do men and women but mostly women but I'd never of course wish um, this on anybody and I will carry it for the rest of my life. And it it has injured me for the rest of my life. However, if I'm going to take anything positive from it, it will be that I have learnt about myself. I have learnt how resilient I am. I have learnt that, yes, it broke me, but I built myself again. And maybe I built myself even better. You know, I'll never know who... 40 year old Anna would be if I hadn't been raped but I am me now and I'm quite proud of me now and yeah you know going through losing Mike again something that you can't ever imagine what it will be like to have gone through something like that losing somebody so close and of course we've all had our own various versions of that of course his mother lost a son unbelievable his brother uh, a brother and me somebody so close to me who I always I thought he would always be in my life I thought he would always be there and suddenly he wasn't and he's someone I really relied on and he was so I just never thought it could happen to Mike you know I know it can happen but I never thought it could happen to Mike I just thought well somebody so knowledgeable and experienced and he just 
gets through life so I mean he had his own struggles but he just was always prepared and I thought he would always be fine and and then he wasn't there anymore and um but one of the major things I felt despite feeling his loss was I felt how sorry I was that he wasn't here to have life you know he lived life to such a full extent that I know he would have gone on to do amazing things I just felt very I guess I felt a kind of responsibility that I was here and he isn't and I can't waste my time thinking life's not fair and all the things that's very natural to feel which I do feel but I need to focus on living a good life because I get to have one and it makes you appreciate how lucky you are to have a life <laughs> and a good life absolutely and we haven't talked about what age Mike was but he was 35 was that correct Anna yeah when he died which is so young it is really young and look it's awful to ever lose anyone at any point in our lives I mean you know um but and there's no there's no but it's just awful it's awful and the fact that you picked yourself up again and and I suppose are honouring his legacy. I know you say you feel responsible, but I also think it's it's a beautiful thing to be able to do to honour his legacy and to keep something going that that helps people with their development and mental health and their resilience and all of these things that we struggle a lot of us to deal with and struggle for outlets to find things to deal with and this comes with such a powerful story and what you also say Anna about how any body type or any person can participate it it opens it up it doesn't make it feel exclusive and and I wonder then who are the participants, Anna? Who do you attract into this? What do they do? Are they all hardcore sports people or are they normal people like you and me? No, absolutely. Well, they're a whole mix and that's what makes it so interesting. Some people will enter and they know they're not going to win. They're not going to win the race outright, but they're going to race and they're going to race their nearest competitors. So we have we call it the pointy end of the race. So we have the few people who are at the front. and But then we have, if you look at the race map, we have a great spread of people in the middle who are racing on their own route, racing in their own way, stopping for different amounts of time and racing according to their own strength. And they are racing the riders around them and, and it matters to them. They're not just oh, just not at the front of the race, so it doesn't matter. It matters very much to them. And yeah, they're doctors their teachers their you know ex-soldiers their bike messengers of course it's very popular with bike messengers they're people from all walks of life and yes you'll have people on the race with the latest bike and maybe they'll have a couple of sponsors so they'll be assisted with kit and things but you'll have people racing on a bike they've had for years and years well people riding all sorts of different bikes and kits and they spend differing amounts of money on their setup and it's not always by any means the most expensive bikes that finish first it's very much more about the human on that bike how well they know themselves and how well they can handle themselves during the entirety of the race and everything that the race kind of throws at them and that could be absolutely anything mechanical 
part your bike could fall off or break what do you do do you know how to fix that yourself can you budget to get yourself to the next bike shop there's so many elements that you've got to be able to manage and yeah it's a real test of a human being I would say um yeah that's that's what I really love about the race that's what keeps me I think that's what Mike intended and that's what keeps me interested that's what keeps me passionate about it and the transcontinental is about 4,000 kilometers. And how many people normally participate in it, Anna? So we kept the race at 300 and we're highly oversubscribed every year. I would say about twice as many people than we can fit on will apply every year. Um, we have sort of stages. So like about, about over a thousand people will sort of express their interest, in which case they are they're getting access to our race manual, which is all about the rules. They'll get access to the route and then they get a couple of weeks to make a decision. Then do they really want to apply? Then they get a couple of weeks to apply because we don't want to favour English speaking. All of our applications are in English because we don't have lots of money for translation. But if you don't speak English as your first language and you need to spend a bit of time translating everything, you have two weeks So there's plenty of time for you to do it properly. And those applications we use to ask people a lot of questions to check they really understand what this race is, what we're trying to achieve with them and what the various elements that they're going to have to handle on the race. And if they can sort of prove to us that they know what what we're about and what we need from them, then they go into a ballot and yeah, it's a ballot, it's a selection then. We want to invite as many cultures and and countries as possible so we'll go through and we'll try and invite people from as many countries as we can we want as many women to race as possible so at the moment if you apply and you're a woman you'll be on the race because we have so few women applying and we've recently started asking ethnicity as well so our intention is to build a race that is inclusive diverse which supports inclusivity and interesting you know I mean that's where we're we're here to provide a race that's interesting for the riders, but also interesting for the spectators. Anna, tell us about the 2019 winner. Yeah, so in 2019, which was our last race, the winner was Fiona Kolbinger. She's a young woman from Germany. She'd just finished medical studies. She was just about to start rotation. And she was our first female winner, outright winner. She won the whole race. In the past, it's been men who've won. And we've had a not a woman's category, but we always celebrate the first woman. But she was the first woman on our events to finish first out of everyone. And that was our seventh ever race so in reality I wouldn't say many races get to say that and she was she was phenomenal really she raced as if it was quite easy (laughs) she enjoyed herself she was smiling every time we saw her on the route she was smiling at the fourth control point which is the last one before the finish she arrived at the control, which is in this lovely hotel in Updwez, Hotel Milan. She walked in and she sat down at the piano and she played, I think, a Lion King song. <laughs> she played that for a while with her helmet on and obviously charmed everybody. She was just so, she's just enjoying herself so much. Lots of people enjoy it, but especially at the front end of the race, they're really pushing themselves. And, and you, you can see people really sort of break. And that didn't happen for Fiona. She just 
strolled it almost, you know, but um, I would say she strolled it, but it was difficult for her. It was an intense experience for her. But I think her personality and the way she operates is so well suited holistically to the race we'd never heard of her before there was a German sports journalist tweeting just before the start of the race he was sort of dropping a few cryptic tweets about this young woman that he knew of that he thought would do well but I'd never met her before I'd never heard her name before she'd never raced she'd done one long event before which was London Edinburgh London so she had no expectations of winning she knew she was strong but she had no expectations of winning and most of us had never heard of her before so she just sort of came out of nowhere and and raced in the way that I would hope all racers can race with grace with enjoyment with a real respect for the rules, for the ethos of the race. She loved the community. She'd never been part of the community before. At the end of the race, she said, it didn't feel like finishing a race. It just felt like coming home to a nice family, you know, and that's just perfect. We're a very friendly community and our volunteers and and everyone is so passionate about it and, and we care about the races and they know they can feel that when they're at our events and so yeah she really enjoyed that aspect of it and enjoyed being part of something not being at the front of something she just felt part of it and she enjoyed it amazing story like phenomenal fantastic wow how did the men feel when a woman won did it put the cat amongst the pigeons supposed to speak with a few and obviously it surprised some people but I would say most of our community weren't at all surprised they were just like well it was going to happen it was obviously going to happen it was just a matter of time and yeah we'd never heard of Fiona before but there were some incredibly strong female riders and racers and our whole community look up to them and admire them it's not just the women admiring the women and the men admire the women you know just as humans just as impressive individuals you know there's a small element of any community who don't get it but yeah and I do CrossFit not competitively and it's one of the sports I love because there's no difference when you rock up yeah you have different weights and all of that because you know the men have higher bars of weight whatever but actually we don't take any notice of men women in in there and and it's brilliant because then it's about what you as a human being can do and what your body can do and what mentally you can do because it's so important isn't it absolutely yeah and rarely we get any element of kind of sexism or anything like that that's unpleasant but most of the time when we're at the start line we we do a registration day where everyone kind of gets to know each other and we have a big meeting amongst us all and we talk about the rules and everything it is just people we're not men and women we're not separated we're not thinking in those terms we're just human beings who've turned up to all come together and put on this event and for me I am the race director I'm making sure everybody understands what we're doing here but I don't feel like it's it's not my event I'm not doing it they're doing it and and it's all of us together and I want them to feel that as because then I think they really will abide by the spirit and and the rules because collectively we're coming together to do this endeavor as any company would if it's successful (laughs) and working in the right way 
we're all coming together, we're playing our part. We have to, you know, play our part in the way that we're intended to play it. And then if we all do that, we will create this event, this happening, this thing together. And it, and if we do that, if we each play our part and do it well, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be amazing. And we're all going to feel that real satisfaction and pride and, you know, affection and love for each other at the finish because we've done a good job together. That's what we do feel. <laughs> you know, we have these parties where lots of the races don't finish. It's such a distance and so many things happen that lots of people don't finish. But everybody who wants to and can get to the finish by the finishers party is welcome. It's for all of us to be there and it's for all of us to celebrate this thing we've created together. No matter how much we managed of it, we were still all together and we still all came together to create it. And yeah, it's such a, an emotional, it's such an emotional experience. It's wonderful. And it must be friends for life as well, Anna. Absolutely. yeah. Yeah. People must really forge friendships that are un- unbreakable, really, if you go through immense and intense experiences like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think even though, like we say, it's unsupported, they choose their own routes, they may not see each other for most of the race. They're very alone for most of the race. However, when they get to the finish they've had the same kind of experience and they're the same kind of people, even though they're all very different. Their passion is the same. And so long as they've raced for the right reasons, they will have the same emotions at the finish line. And so, yeah, you're quite right. We're a community of people who live all over the world and never, hardly ever get, well, we see each other once a year when we when we do the race but we're very close yeah and yeah it's a community I never expected to meet or become a part of I never would have guessed that I would have this in my life and yeah I, I'm honoured to be a part of it and I get Mike's not here to do it but I'm glad like you say I'm glad to to honour his legacy and and continue this beautiful thing that he created you know so yeah it's an honour for me. Amazing. And there was so much in this conversation and we only touch on parts of it. We agreed we would talk about certain things today and it wasn't to um, underplay any of the discussions that we've had in this about rape or death or grief or anything like that. That wasn't the main topic of this conversation. It was more about what human beings go through and what human beings are capable of. And so if you think we haven't covered these in great detail it was never the intention to do that in this conversation it was more to talk about like we've done and I hope that's that's okay with you Anna for me to say that I think Anna's nodding here (laughs) yeah thank you yeah and so Anna how does someone connect with you if they'd like to or if they'd like to learn more about Lost Dot or the Transcontinental I have a website yeah Yep, so if they go to www.transcontinental.cc, then you can read all about the history of the race. Unfortunately, you can't apply this year because we had entrants from 2019 and almost all of them are still wanting to race. So unfortunately, we won't be taking on any entrants this year, but the following year we'll be taking a new entrance. If you're sort of interested, if you sign up to our mailing list which you can do from the website you'll get an email in your inbox inviting you to check out 
next year's race and explaining everything about how to apply. Or you can find us on most social media. So we've got Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And if you just search transcontinental or transcontinental race, you'll find us. Fantastic. And I'll put those links in the show notes as well, Anna. And if somebody's like going, that's never for me, I could never do that. What would you say to them? Well, what would I say to them? I'd say even if you think you can't, if you're still welcome in our community. So if you want to volunteer, if you're you're captivated by the race, but you don't want to race like me, (laughs) then volunteer. It's still such an experience and we're such a lovely community. We welcome everybody. So, you know, if this has really piqued your interest, maybe just start by volunteering. But on the other hand, if you think, well, maybe it is, maybe it isn't for me, I would say if you love cycling and you love travel, it's such an awesome thing to get involved in. And travelling by bike is the best way to see the world. Ask any of our riders. We have a Facebook group. So if you want to join our Facebook group, search for that and you can, you know, ask us any questions. It's a real friendly group. So there's lots of different ways to be involved. And even if you're just watching, when I first met Mike and I'd sort of tell my parents' friends about this race and I'd show them how to watch it on the map and they'd be telling me, you know, we can't stop looking. We can't stop watching. (laughs) It is really captivating. So yeah, if this has just sparked your interest in any way, just check us out and get involved however you feel like it really. Amazing. Anna, thank you so much for your openness and for sharing so much about your life personally and professionally with what you're doing. And I wish you really the very best going forward and all the community too. Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from or questions for me, please drop a line to Susan at beyond-the-numbers.com And finally, please consider leaving a review.